Hey everybody, you're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno and I want to welcome you to the Macro Trading Floor. This is, as you know by now, the most actionable macro podcast out there. And this is Alfonso Peccatello speaking, also known as Macro Alf. How are you guys doing? It's September the 9th, as we record, Andreas. And um, as always, it's pretty fascinating in 2022. There's always something macro interesting to talk about. And this time, I would say, is the pretty strong response uh, or the direction, at least, that European policymakers, not only in the euro area, but also in the UK or in Switzerland, seem to be taking uh, as a countermeasure against the energy crisis. And you have been very vocal about the energy crisis and the impact it can have on European economies. So I'll let you first summarize what's going on. Well, first of all, uh, what we've seen this week is a whole pamphlet of liquidity bailout being presented, uh, first of all in the UK, but uh, secondly also from the European Commission. Uh, and the reason why we've seen these liquidity bailouts is that we've seen huge margin calls uh, within the energy sector, in particular from utility companies. And what actually happened was that um, the spread between the electricity sold forward from utilities and the input costs from natural gas and carbon emission certificates blew up completely last week. And what happens when, um, when such a spread blows up is that the utility, having sold electricity forward, for example, on a one-year contract, um, and having bought the same natural gas input on a one-year uh, forward contract, they, they basically end up with a massive net-net margin call because yeah. of the uh, contract blowing up on the top side in electricity. Uh, and the issue here is that it takes quite a while before they can recover that income stream. Um, so obviously, the counterpart in such trade will have to ask the utility to post collateral, or cash rather, um, for, for, for this trade. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, these uh, utilities, they couldn't really cover the liquidity issue, uh, which meant that politicians had to step in. But before they stepped in, a lot of these utilities um, bought back the electricity futures in markets, uh, which was why we saw this parabolic move in the one-year German electricity future, was it late last week. But with these liquidity packages, we will actually get the electricity price back towards fundamentals, I'd say, uh, which is a good thing. So I actually support that the government um, provides liquidity to, uh, to the market here, because otherwise it would be mayhem. Yeah. And Andreas, basically, you covered one angle of the policymakers' response, which is the government response. And uh, both you and I agree that the government bill and the, pub and the private sector bill together on this energy bill over this winter will probably be almost in the 10% of GDP if you sum them up together. And on the public side, maybe 5 to 6% alone. We're talking about a pretty serious boost to deficits, let's say, so higher debt and more currency being printed by the government perspective. So what about central banks, right? Because you have basically two ways to react to a crisis like that. You can decide to go through some pain. So keep tight policy, both fiscally and from a monetary perspective as well. So you increase real interest rates. You do not use the public sector balance sheet to shield the private sector. You go through some proper pain and you try effectively to protect the value of your currency, long-term value of your currency. Or alternatively, you can shield the private sector. And, but to shield the private sector, you, you can't only rely on governments. Generally speaking, you always will have some sort of monetary policy twist as well. So what do you, make, what do you think they're going for? 
Well, uh, first of all, let me say that uh, the world seems to be upside down. Central banks are tightening, while uh, fiscal policymakers are, are easing uh, via the balance sheet. Uh, I, I posted a tweet the other day with uh, Powell uh, upside down saying, hey, folks, we used to do the bailouts. <laughs> Please allow us to do them again. But um, uh, joking aside, uh, I think the important thing here is to, to, um, to take a look at the time horizons. Um, in, in, in terms of the um, side effects on financial markets from such a policy mix, uh, because I actually tend to think that it's a positive for the European market relative to the scenario uh, without bailouts, that uh, these bailouts are now being presented alongside um, interest rate hikes. I actually think that package could be okay short term, but longer term, uh, you obviously blow a massive hole in the um, fiscal budget or the fiscal balance sheet. Mm -hmm. um, fresh euros are being created um, via this public deficit. So I'm not sure that it is a medium to long term positive for for the markets. Um, it, it, it is a bit important to distinguish between between these time horizons here. Yeah, that's important. And the uh, European Central Bank yesterday also announced a 75 basis point hike, Andreas, and uh, I found that to be not the most interesting part of Lagarde's press conference because it's a bit technical, but I think we should try and cover it. Uh, European banks have borrowed more than 2 trillion euros in TLTROs from the ECB between 2020 and 2021. And these TLTROs were uh, several years long, actually, and the, the borrowing conditions were extremely favorable between June 20 and June 2022, with borrowing rates all the way down to minus 1%. So there was an easy arbitrage for European banks. But the idea before this press conference was that European banks would somehow be penalized for holding the steel TRO borrowings for too long, and the central bank wouldn't allow them to have a very nice carry with low borrowing costs and now deposit rates on the asset side being increased. So there was an idea that there would have been kind of a reverse steering mechanism, so a way to not incentivize banks to keep this excess liquidity in the eurozone. And guess what? There was nothing announced from that front. So what that means is that European banks will be able to continue keeping these TLTRO loans on their balance sheet, which means the excess liquidity in the eurozone will not go down quick at all because prepayments won't be there because European banks will have a great incentive to effectively carry on these TLTRO loans. What I'm saying is that effectively the ECB yesterday wrote a check to European banks, mm. a pretty clear check, a very easy carry check. And the second is that you won't see the European Central Bank shrink at all because there has been no discussion about quantitative tightening yet. And on top of it, TLTRO loans won't be repaid because the incentive scheme is too good for banks. So the ECB is hiking rates. And on the other hand, is basically allowing excess liquidity to be as ample as it can be for quite a long period of time. Let me also mention that uh, the European Central Bank has not um, put the so-called TPI program into use yet. Uh, yeah. And I think the reason is that beneath the surface, they've actually reshuffled the reinvestments of the pandemic purchase program from German bonds to Italian bonds quite effectively over summer. Um, so they've chosen sort of the sneaky path towards supporting peripheral debt um, rather than using the program actually designed for it. Um, and I think that's a smart move from sort of a political perspective because no one cares, <laughs> because no one gets it. Um, yeah. But um, you should be aware of that. It's happening beneath the surface. So this goes exactly into the category of European policymakers, but also in the UK actually, choosing to use uh, the public sector balance sheet to shield the private sector. 
um, the European Central Bank here is trying to play, I think, two games. One is to be credible on raising real rates, so that they're going to hike rates, and they signal that basically the terminal rate is somewhere around 2%. That's where they see it today. So they validated market forwards. Okay, all nice and dandy. Uh, on the other hand, though, they're making sure that excess liquidity remains ample so that basically this government deficit story, especially in the eurozone, is always a bit, a bit of a tricky situation. And together with the PEPP reinvestment skewed towards the periphery, basically the peripheral debt market doesn't blow up. But you're having European policymakers also in the UK using the public leverage, basically the, the balance sheet of the public sector to try and, and uh, protect the private sector. And that's giving a short-term boost to currencies, both in, in the sterling and in the euro. But as we discussed long-term, it's a bit of a different story. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, we will get back to the discussion on the euro area versus surrounding currencies in just a while when we introduce the guest. But the last thing I wanted to mention uh, is a very sneaky little part of the communication by the Bank of England, because they've actually released a, uh, a new press release where they admit to being able to buy bonds directly at auctions should it be necessary mm -hmm. um, for them to sort of keep the liquidity intact in the uh, sterling bond market. Um, that's how they phrase it roughly. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting uh, newcomer since quantitative easing always works through the secondary market. So the central bank buys the bond in the secondary market, but we've never heard of central banks actually supporting directly at the bond auctions. And I think this is a newcomer if the Bank of England uh, decides to utilize this if the demand for bonds drops. But Deus ex machina is back again, Andreas, telling us that the public sector won't allow um, Putin effectively to bring the European continent to its knees rapidly. Let me put it like that. They're going to try and stem the, his, his, his attempt as much as they can using the public sector and gain time. And if you think about it, that's smart because you try and gain time by using the, a credible public sector balance sheet as long as it remains credible to basically buy time and repair the long-term uh, viability of your energy business model. Yep. And right now, I think in between 81 and 84, ships fully loaded with liquid natural gas are on their way from the US to European soil. Uh, so I think they're trying to buy themselves time, right? Yeah. Um, because the supply side uh, story could actually surprise a bit to the positive side now since we, I mean, let me just say it straight, straight up, with 0% flows from Russia via the Nord Stream pipeline and via the Jamal Europe pipeline to Europe, how can you be surprised on the negative side, on the supply side anymore? I mean, it, it literally can't happen. Uh, so I'm starting to convince myself that the supply side mechanics will prove to be a little bit better than feared. Yeah. Um, and the politicians have obviously decided to kick the can down the road when it comes to the bill for this. Yeah, which is reasonable, I think, as a first-term mm. reaction, but there are long-term implications to discuss. Let's mm. invite the guest of the day, which is very... Uh, very well versed in discussing long-term macro implications, I would say. So it is now our great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor, uh, Vincent Delois, uh, the Director of Global Macro Strategy at StoneX Financial. It's very good to see you, Vincent. It's a pleasure. As, as I've been telling you, I feel like I've known you guys because you produce such amazing, not just the quality, which 
is already something, but the quantity of the content you put out is just extraordinary. So it's, it's my honor. Thank you for what you do. My wife would agree with you that the quantity is way too much. And I should stop, <laughs> I should stop tweeting and putting out all that stuff for free, by the way. I mean, we are crazy, Andreas. Why are we doing that? That's terrible. Um, anyway, um, this is the Open Air Museum of Europe with uh, an Italian, a Danish, and formerly a French guy. I, no, I, I still am. I, I'm French and American now. That I, French I, I, and I'm American. holding on to my French passport because the World Cup's coming up and I want to be on the winning side. All right. What's that, happening to you, Alf, by the way? Uh, I forget. Oh, which, uh, which group are you? Uh, sorry, guys. I think the episode of this week gets interrupted right now. The guest of the week is very belligerent, and I don't like that attitude because Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup, and I don't need a reminder. Okay, back to Macro now, uh, Vincent. So um, you've been one of the most vocal strategists out there uh, when it comes to the inflation regime shift. And also, especially the Federal Reserve reaction function to that, which many people underestimated. And we got the Jackson Hole speech, which was short, clear, pretty much unambiguous. That's my perspective. Do you want to start from there and elaborating about how the U.S. macro picture fits into your overall macro assessment? Yeah, thank you. I, I actually completely agree with your assessment on Jackson Hole. I think you had a, a good note on that. Um, I don't think the market should have been surprised um, if you look at past communication from the Fed. I mean, this idea of the, the dovish pivot of 2023 was just um, some sort of fairy tale that, that the market had told itself, uh, pricing in you know, up to three rate cuts and a very low terminal rate. Uh, but, but the Fed never told them that. So I think uh, Powell just kind of restated what needed to be restated. Um, I thought he did it well. Um, I think there's a secondary question in terms of how high can he go before he breaks things. Um, and the persistence of inflation. But as far as, you know, what his goal was, I think he, he achieved that. Um, again, he said, you know, I want tighter financial conditions. Uh, you know, that is to me the, the key, um, if we think about risk assets. I mean, this is what he said about a year ago now, well, in the, in the fall, and we do not have tight financial condition when you see, you know, the AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, crypto rallying, uh, so he needed to, uh, you know, um, signal the end of recess. Um, he did that. Um, my, my, my personal take is that it's not going to be enough. Uh, I still think the economy is too hot. Uh, that is the biggest problem we face. I think, you know, all year we've been kind of um, like um, Odysseus navigating between Caribbean and Scylla. You know, Caribbean high inflation, Scylla would be uh, the recession. Uh, my view is that one is worse than the other and, and the recession stuff, I mean, I don't know, maybe it will happen. Maybe it's already happened. I, you know, whatever the problem is inflation, uh, and the labor market and the labor market is still very hot. We saw that in the, in the latest, uh, job market report, and that will keep kind of feeding on that structural inflation. I mean, energy prices will do whatever they do. I have no clue, but at the end of the problem, at the end of the day, the problem is on the labor market, and I think it will require a, a very large amount of tightening to get there. And I don't know if we can get that tightening without breaking things. Either we break things in, in the bond market, we break things in the repo market like last time, or we break things in emerging markets as, as the dollar just keeps going up, wrecking uh, emerging market economies. So, Vincent, if we look at the current state of the labor market. You mentioned the very strong labor market report out last month, uh, but we also still have a very elevated amount of job openings in the U.S. economy. What does it take for the Fed to conclude that the labor market is no longer hot, in your opinion? 
Well, so, I mean, let's start with job openings because that is the, um, you know, this is the problem, right? We have a, a lot of unfilled positions in the U.S. So I, I think we're at the peak with 11 million job openings. And that has gone down a bit to maybe 10.5. Um, in any given recession, um, on average of the past three, which includes two really big ones, right, COVID and, and, and 2008, we destroyed about 2.5 million job openings in a recession. So that would take us to about 9 million job openings. Uh, for reference, we were at seven right before COVID when the economy was, you know, in that perfect state, uh, Goldilocks 2019. <laughs> uh, and I think we were at six million job openings in, in 2006. So in other words, even with a very deep recession, we would still have uh, more, a lot more, almost twice as much job openings as we had at the prior two peaks. Um, so I don't know what that tells you. I mean, I think it means that we need a much deeper recession in order to take up the heat. Um, you know, I think the, um, the, the I think that actually the problem is, is in the, the question, you know, uh, um, the word, will the job labor market normalize? It refers to a baseline that no longer exists. Uh, and I think that was the, the mistake that the Fed made under the influence of Neil Kashkari and others. Oh, you know, we're not going to tighten rates until the labor market has fully normalized. The, the view that it would go back to where we were in 2019. My view is COVID has changed things. Uh, it really has changed um, even the very physical bodies of, of U.S. workers. Um, I, I saw a stat, I think, uh, on average, Americans took 20 pounds during the lockdowns. I mean, this is a country where you have 40% of the population that's obese. Uh, you add 20 points to that, there's a lot of jobs you cannot do. Uh, and that's the job where we see the biggest squeeze, right? Uh, um, waiters, restaurants, services, um, carrying stuff, um, logistics. Um, so there's that problem. There's the mental health problem, which, um, you know, is huge. I think about 40% of, of teenagers uh, struggle with anxiety. Uh, addiction is another one. Um, and then we have a lot of um, maybe I'll finish on a more uh, positive uh, note. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is I think a, a lot of people just kind of reordered their priorities uh, in terms of, you know, okay, the lockdowns, you know, take time to look inside. What is it that I really want? Why am I working? And at the same time, we saw the emergence of this gig economy uh, with uh, the ability to create and to earn uh, independent streams of, uh, of income. Um, and that's really exploded. Uh, in the past two years. Uh, so, you know, so I, I think the Fed mistakenly people th thought that, you know, Americans were just like sitting on the couch, you know, watching some Netflix uh, while, you know, spending their steamies. Um, the reality is no, people people found new ways of life. Like, you know, if, if you were a bartender and you've been out of, of a job for a year, you got to figure out a way to make money. So maybe that's driving an Uber, uh, maybe that's uh, creating content on, on YouTube, uh, OnlyFans if you're better looking, uh, or uh, DoorDash or whatever. You have this entire... Um, yes? <laughs> I wanted to say something in that regards. I've promised to open an OnlyFans account if Eurodollar breaks 0.95 on the downside. And I'm getting increasingly scared by the day currently. So <laughs> go ahead. Oh <laughs> well, so yeah, so no, all of that has created avenues that did not exist in 08. 
And I think that changes the dynamic uh, between labor and capital. Uh, you know, after the OA crisis, unemployment rate goes to 10% and above. People are losing their homes. They're losing life insurance. So there's a health insurance in the U.S., which is a big deal because we have a completely dysfunctional, uh, messed up system contrary to superior Europeans. Uh, and... Um, and yeah, so people came back. Uh, they had to come back. They had to take whatever job was available, even that meant, you know, flipping burgers at $7.5 an hour, which at the time was the minimum wage. Um, today, the situation is very different. Yes, we may have a recession. Yes, you know, real estate prices may come down, but you still have two job openings per, uh, per an employee worker. And really, you have the option of, you know, taking your phone. Here you go. In, in maybe 10 minutes, I can sign up to be an Uber driver. And, uh, you know, San Francisco where I am, probably make, you know, about 40, 50 bucks an hour driving an Uber. Uh, so why would I, you know, take a minimum job at, at 15 bucks an hour and, and get the abuse that goes with, you know, retail? I mean, people are angry, everybody's burned out. Um, so I think the rise of the gig economy um, kind of shifts back. We had this 40 year period of, you know, margins going up, uh, capital making out like a bandit at the expense of labor, unions shrinking. And, and I think we are at the dawn of a, a, a reversal of that movement, partly because of demography, partly because of technology, and, and partly because of COVID. And now, Vincent, what I want to pick it up is this story is very U.S. idiosyncratic, or at least it's partially U.S. idiosyncratic. But when you talk about the shift from capital to labor, it has to be a global phenomenon in a highly globalized economy, right? We need to take into account what happens abroad, right? So, and I know you have quite a view as well on the U.S. becoming uh, disenchanted, I think, quoting your own words with globalization and also what's happening in China. So can you kind of tie this together as well with what's happening outside the U.S. and how the deglobalization trends might affect this theme? A lot of the trends we see ultimately boil down to, to what happened uh, to China in, in China in the 70s. Uh, so you had the end of the Great Leap Forward, um, Cultural Revolution, anything goes. Mao wanted to have a big population because he thought there was going to be nuclear annihilation. So you had this explosion in birth rate in China, like a baby boom, but a little bit later. So you have a massive generation of Chinese uh, babies born in the 70s, and then that gets cut in half in 1981 when you get the one-child policy. Now, guess what happened to these people who were born in the 70s in, in the 1990s? the 20, right, by definition. Uh, and, and, and the Chinese leader, uh, Deng, at the time, realizes, oh, my God, like, he sees what's happening in the Soviet Union. He sees Tiananmen um, riots in the terms. Uh, and it's like, okay, if I don't give jobs to this massive youth bulge, I will finish like, like Gorbachev or worse. Uh, so this is when China uh, decides to open the, the special economic zones and very importantly devalues the yuan twice by about 50% cumulatively. Uh, because the strategy then becomes, okay, I'm going to be a manufacturing hub of the world because export, my domestic economy is, you know, not, not able to support these people. But if I have a deeply undeveloped currency, special economic zone, I can just um, leverage that cheap labor and, 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 and solve that crisis. Uh, so this happened in China in the early 90s, and then, it, you know, it, it spreads to the rest of Asia uh, because... Um, um, be, be because, you know, if, if you're Thailand or uh, Korea and suddenly you have, you know, a 1.4 billion country with a 70% of the value currency, you, you can't compete on that. So then it just spreads with the, the 1997, 98 uh, East Asian crisis. You know, it starts with the Thai bath and the Indonesian rupiah and the Korean one. All Asian currency basically 
have to take the Chinese model, undeveloped currency, export-driven growth. So what you really have is half of the world, and we have the most productive half of the world, is effectively subsidizing uh, the rest of the world. Not uncontinentally, this is the first time in the U.S. we heard the term, term great moderation. Where, where the hell is inflation, right? Inflation should be higher. We're having this Goldilocks moment. Now, of course, Greenspan being Greenspan, he takes the credit. Oh, that's because I'm such a good Fed chairman that, you know, I'm, you know I've solved this. You know, no more recession in our lifetimes. Uh, so this, to me, is the, the history of the disinflationary era of, of the 90s, 2000, and to some extent, 2010s. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, that generation is born in the 70s, right? And then after that, you get this great fall off from a cliff you go from basically six kids per woman to to one. And not just in China, but even the countries which did not have the one-child policy did on their own. You look at birth rate in Korea, uh, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, even Thailand uh, is the same story. So now we face the exact opposite problem. Instead of having to create 20 million jobs a year, China is going to have to destroy. The labor force is going to drop by 20 million. Uh, so to answer, my long answer to the question is this, is what changes the relative balance of power between labor and capital. You move from a world where you have 20 million highly productive young workers who work for nothing because they really wanted to a much more prosperous society where these people are aging and leaving the labor force in drove, and that reduces cost pressure. I mean, because then all the other economies had to compete with China, right? So, I mean, you had to cut wages. I mean, in Germany, we had the uh, hard sphere and the... Um, <clears throat> the great moderation of uh, Agenda 2010, uh, structural reforms in Europe, all of that because we have to compete with China. That pressure point is going to move away. So I do think this is going to be a global phenomenon. Of course, we see it first in the U.S. because it's the leading economy. But I think you see it in Europe already. I mean, even though Europe is in recession and we have all these labor market issues, you have shortages everywhere in, in Europe, labor shortages. Uh, so, and it's, it's not going to get better because, you know, we should have made... You know, we should have been like Andreas and, and making more babies. <laughs> I'm doing my best at least. Um, but I want to play the devil's advocate on that uh, the demographical argument, because um, if we assume that the labor force will shrink, for example, in Italy, for example, in China, uh, I guess it's basically a done deal unless you import a lot of workers from the outside, because, I mean, it takes 20 years to create a 20-year-old, right? So uh, you cannot just change the situation overnight. But... Assuming that we have a shrinking labor force, Vincent, um, where do you see the um, development for structural growth heading in such a scenario? And what about real interest rates in such a scenario, given that it's probably a struggle to keep up growth at uh, historical levels, given that the labor force shrinks? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're kind of making a R-star argument where, you know, the, mm. some of the, the equilibrium level of of interest rates, um, you know, should be more or less your trend growth. And as your trend growth falls, that, that, that equilibrium falls, kind of the, the story of Japan. Um, I, I'm somewhat on the other side of, of that debate. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I, I, I see, I don't see a market clearing mechanism that ensures that the interest rate should be equal to, uh, you know, trend growth rate of the economy plus some sort of a term premium. I mean, to me, these seem like, I mean, economic theories that are kind of made after the fact to explain what happens. But um, I, again, I need to see, um, I'd like to understand how, what force in market is going to drive that outcome. My, my understanding on, on how interest rates are set is, um, <clears throat> is the, 
basically the supply of excess savings in the world. Uh, and, and that really comes from current account balances, right? You, at any given point in time, you have countries that have, um, you know, more savings than the desire to consume. As a result, they accumulate uh, a current account surplus, which then turns into a financial account deficit. They have to send their savings over, uh, overseas uh, because the domestic economy cannot consume. So to me, um, the past 24 years, we had a lot of countries uh, trying to, to do that exactly, uh, uh, consume less than what they earned. Uh, so you had uh, basically, I would I call it, could call that the three gluts. Uh, one was um, petrodollars, right? You suddenly have this great increase in, in oil prices in, in, after 1998, and every commodity, and, and you know this this is collected by small autocracies in in in, in countries with, with no no domestic consumption, like Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Russia. Like they didn't have the economic capacity, so that ended up a lot of it being corruption, right, but ended up in London, in PSG, uh, in uh, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, in uh, buildings in Europe, uh, but also in, in purchase of U.S. treasuries and currency reserves. Um, so that's the first glut. Uh, second glut was the one I, I briefly described before, which was the East Asian glut. Uh, okay, I'm going to keep my currency low, and I'm going to create that massive buffer of capital so that the IMF never comes to my country and tells me how to run things. Uh, and, and this is what China did, and then progressively all of East Asia did that. And then the, the third glut was a Euro glut, uh, where the Germans, uh, under the influence of, of Gerhard Schroeder and the Agenda 2010 and then the, the hard sphere reforms, and also because of demography, right? I mean, you had this massive boomer generation that was peak earning, right? When you like, the, be the best time for saving is when you're between 50 and 60, you're the empty nester, right? You, your parents are already dead, your kids are already at the home, uh, so you can save 50% of your income, and if you're German, because you're German, you save like 80%. Uh, so... <clears throat> These were like the, the three big gluts, and this is to me what kept yields down for, for 40 years because a lot of that got reinvested into the U.S. Treasury market. Uh, going forward, I'm not sure that we, we will see that. I mean, I kind of hear your point on growth, but uh, I think uh, yields will be driven by, by this, these three forces. So if we think about uh, the, the, the petrol glut, well, you know, Russian savings are no longer welcome in, in a, they're like pariah, right? I mean, they have, they'll have to stay in Russia. I suspect the same thing will happen for, you know, Iran or, you know, we are seeing kind of renationalization of finance. Uh, so that's gone. Uh, on Europe, Germany has a current income deficit right now. I mean, I cannot stress how important that is. I think Japan as well. I mean, these were like the two, you know, the German pension fund and the Japanese insurer. Like these were like the, the savers of last resort. These guys, because of the fall of the euro, because of the energy crisis, they now have deficits. And I expect this deficit to become structural. Like the, the German economic engine is durably hampered by what's, what's happening right now. So that blood is gone. And then in terms of China, um, you know, uh, clearly they have all these domestic problems happening, the, the bank runs, the real estate. So I think they need to focus domestically. They're going to keep the economy shut. I think they're very scared of, of balance of payment crisis. They certainly, after, after seeing what happened to Russia, they do not want to have 1.5 trillion in savings in U.S. dollar that can be just snapped overnight. Um, so to me, all of that kind of argues for this higher yield for longer, even though I... I do agree with you on the growth picture. It's it's going to be lower growth, but I think we can have. Then that's kind of my out, my baseline. We can have lower growth, high inflation, higher rates, at the same time. So what you are basically uh, depicting, Vincent, is a materially different environment from the last one and a half decades, where you're talking about low real growth, but uh, a shift 
of power from capital to labor, which is going to also increase real yields more structurally across the board, and also forward real yields are going to be higher. In an environment where most of the uh, market cap in stock indices is actually composed from companies that benefited for the last 15 years from very low cost of capital, and we saw the, you know, the apex of that in 2021 with uh, Peloton and the likes of it, right? Uh, but this is still there to a large extent when it comes to large mega cap tech stocks and, and the composition of the equity indices is favorable towards lower real yields, not higher real yields. So I need to ask you, what do you make of that tectonic shift you're describing into the equity market? Right. Um, I, I agree with the analysis. I, I think the past you know, four years has led to a structural increase in the duration of pretty much every asset. And you even see that in bond indices, you know, the, the duration of the high yield bond index, uh, the, the, the Barclays Ag, it has all increased, right? Because it made sense, right? I mean, you see in Austria issue hundred year bonds. Um, so that that's the market doing what market does is responding to incentives uh, on the so on the bond markets it's increased duration and the equity market is kind of the same thing right I mean all, with all your unicorns you know oh let me grow into my profit you know Amazon did not turn a profit in the first ten years uh, all the VC all the money going into VCs it was basically everybody pumping asset into very high duration assets and as a result you have a very long duration stock market. Um, I think I calculated once uh, that the duration of the FANG was about like 35 years. Um, if you think of it in terms of, um, if you think of it in terms of a bond, in terms of how long does it, because duration if you, is how long it takes to get your principal back, right? I mean, basically if you, if you uh, so a 10 year bond with, you know, has a nine year duration, depending on the size of the coupon, something like that. So if you do the same thing for stocks, you get to like 30 plus a duration because indeed your, your stock market is heavily concentrated in very high multiple, hopefully high growth stocks like Amazon, like Apple, like Google, et cetera. Um, so um, yeah, I think it's gonna be a problem um, because this is, as rates go up, uh, that duration effect, when, when you derive so much of your value for stuff that will happen in 30 years, um, I mean, if you've ever done a discounted cash flow model, I mean, you really see how sensitive you are to small changes in, in, in discount rate that you use. So I, I am, uh, in general, I, I have a short duration bias and the translation into the, the equity market world would be to go to avoid the US, which is part of the longest duration index in the world and go into short duration indices, which to me is mostly emerging markets because you have a lot of energy, basic material companies, straightforward, like less than book value, very high earnings yield. Uh, so you can think of it as like a, you know, a, I don't know, a two-year note with a very high coupon for emerging markets. And then you can think of, of the U.S. as a 30-year bond with, with, with a bullet with no coupon. I, I actually made the calculation on a portfolio very reminiscent to Kathy Wood's ARC portfolio uh, on duration during 2021. And I think I calculated a plus 60 years uh, average duration of such a portfolio of fintechs and, and, and other companies in that sector. And I mean, I had to triple check the Excel spreadsheet before I actually trusted that number. But it was the right number, Elf. Andreas, I think... Um the right number in some cases might be infinite yeah. duration because you'll never get <laughs> just kidding about the, let's say, non, uh, non-profitable companies that are in that basket. But okay, it's a very long duration asset. We agree on yeah. that. Uh, but I wanted to also pick your brain, uh, Vincent, on the foreign exchange markets uh, during such a regime shift because, I mean, Germans, uh, the Japanese, they've saved a lot of money in US dollars 
during this period of uh, current account surpluses. So what do you make of the US dollar? Should we get this regime shift and permanent current account deficits in Europe and Japan? This is a very hard one for me because I, I've spent the first 10 years of my career being the, the Euro guy. Uh, my, my job was basically to tell nervous American investors that Italians are full of it and they would never leave the union, uh, which, which is correct. Uh, so I've been, I've been kind of the, the Euro bull for, for a long time and it, it's, it's a sad and lonely world. You know, to be a Euro bull. Um, so, I mean, I, I I came out about two years ago. I, I yeah, and I, I'm good friend with Brent Johnson, and I I gave up. I I I don't want to get into Twitter fights with with Brent because you know at the end of the day, it's it just I mean defending the Euro is is too hard. Uh, so I I am I don't really have a a very strong view on the dollar. I mean, I, 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 I we all see, uh, and I, I, I'm saying it coming from, from the losing side, the dollar milkshake. I mean, you know, it, it is happening. It has happened. I mean, people like Brandt, um, uh, Jeff Snyder saw that earlier than most and, and really it's unfolding right. So I, I think we need to give credit where, where credit is due. Um, can it keep going? Um, Yes, I think so. Uh, but I, I do think at some point the pain becomes too much that you get some sort of a, you know, a, an agreement. Like I, I think we have a, you know, a, a G20 coming up. Uh, my, my friend, Louis Vincent from Gafcal just called that the, the Bali agreement. Because um, it, it is bad. Like it, it, it is really, really bad. I mean, you know, if you're Pakistan, if you are, you know, you see what happened in Sri Lanka. Uh, I mean, it's not just just numbers on the screen. It's, you know, people losing their lives, not feeding their kids. Uh, and as far as G20 goes, leaders getting beheaded if things keep going that way. Uh, so you really have an incentive to stop that dollar wrecking ball. Uh, so if I were to make a guess is I think we'll, we'll have to find a way so that the dollar doesn't break the global economy, either you do that with swap lines or, uh, you know, uh, different, uh, even just talking like, you know, like kind of like the, the plaza core, uh, you know, you just say, okay, well, you know, this is it like this, whatever, 150 on the yen, one on the euro, and, and we're going to defend it. And, and, and if you're credible enough, if you get enough people around the table, and, and I do think the world has a kind of a vested, vested interest in in avoiding that kind of a you know dollar wrecking ball scenario, and I, I really hope we do because it it is a dark world that awaits us if we if we let uh, things continue the way they've been going. Vincent, you know that the macro trading floor is a nice place where we chat about macro, long term, short term, etc. But at some point, we have to ask our guests, what's your actionable macro trade idea with a three to six months horizon, and also where could you be wrong in your uh, in your macro trade idea and why? Okay, so this is a hard one for me uh, because I feel that like my main call uh, has um, has manifested itself after the Jackson Hole. I, I was you know higher, steeper, longer camp. I didn't know the whole dovish, and the market has started to price some of that. I mean, I, I still think. Especially if you look at the long end, if you like, a long, I would say long-term inflation swap to me are, are one of the most horribly mispriced assets, um, and as a result, probably 
long-term rates need to go up to catch up with that. But again, I, I'm talking after we had a huge move uh, in, in this, in, so it's possible that we get a counter move. But I, I still think if you have a, you said three to six months, so that's that's why I'm not answering that because it's more like, you know, five to 10 years, I still think, you know, long-term inflation expectation is wrong. Rates need to go up. Term premium needs to get back into the curve. That's my long-term idea. Short-term, um, I'm bearish on a lot of stuff, as you may imagine. Um, you know, I think this is just a kind of a bear market rally, and we are, you know, we're going to retest the lows. Uh, so I would keep a lot of cash, which I know doesn't get people very excited to be long cash. But I would say that. Now, if, if I want to spice it up a bit, I would say keep some of that cash in the Swiss franc. Um, you know, as a, as a French person, uh, you know, when I don't know what to do, Buying the Swiss franc is, is, is never a bad idea uh, in general, and I think especially now. Uh, and if you allow, I'll go a little bit into why um, I believe that. Uh, I think, you know, for the past 10 years, we had a global demand problem. Uh, it was, there was not enough demand. Uh, and and, and the, the, the name of the game for monetary policy was to steal demand from your neighbors. And the way you did that was by devaluing the currency. So it was kind of a race to the bottom. Whoever did it first won the economic war, right? So it was Bernanke first, and then Kuroda did it, and then eventually uh, Draghi did it. No, Draghi, then Kuroda. Uh, and, and whoever had the weaker currency at even point in time were able, was able to grow faster. Um, I think we, we're moving to a completely different world where the problem is, is supply, no longer demand. We have too much demand, not enough supply. So when you have too much demand, not, not enough supply, what you want is a strong currency to buffer the, the shock of higher energy costs and, and, and all that. Now, you need to look at the world and think, okay, who has the potential? Very easily can pick a higher currency. Now, the obvious one is a dollar, but you know, have Brent Johnson on, you know, he'll, he'll do a much better job than me explaining the dollar milkshake. Uh, Looking at looking at Europe, to me, the Swiss franc is the obvious one where we can just the, the SNB can just set the value of the currency at any price it wants. I mean, it's been actively suppressing it for ten years. How has it done that by buying you know negative yielding government bond in in Germany and a bunch of stocks? By the way, I mean, if you look at the I think the ownership of Apple, like the SNB is in the top ten holders, and that's true of pretty much every single U.S. stock. I mean, the, the Swiss National Bank is the largest hedge fund in the world, uh, and they own foreign assets. I mean, if you divide the reserves, I think they have like 1.5 trillion, so there's um, about 15 million Swiss people. So that's about 100,000 euros per capita in currency reserve that the Swiss Central Bank can just throw at the problem and just set the price for the Swiss franc. Now, the reason the SNB hasn't done that is because they were worried about deflation. Uh, and they wanted that weak currency. Now it's the exact opposite, right? You worry about you worry about inflation. So the Swiss franc, and it's not part of the euro system, which is fantastic. I mean, and no one should have gone in there. The Swiss were smart as usual. They didn't go in there. They have the flexibility, and they have an awesome economy. You know, it's like I think they're going to have a government surplus this year. Uh, they're still growing. Inflation is like four percent when it's like you know twenty percent in in Eastern Europe and and ten percent in the rest of the world. Uh, they have a very uh, high value added economy, um, healthcare, which I like, uh, big current account surplus, low unemployment rate. If you ever could think of a country where the currency should appreciate, that would be Switzerland. 
It's time to put on the reverse farmer trade, as I usually call it, the long Swiss franc trade. We've had a lot of farmers being short uh, the Swiss franc in, in, in the Nordics, at least. Uh, they usually um, took out a loan in Swiss franc to, um, to fund the, the, the local farm. But uh, I guess they've learned their lesson over the past couple of decades. Um, and they will be probably be taught again if they try it <laughs> once more. Uh, Vincent, it was an absolute pleasure to host you at the macro trading floor. Uh, fingers crossed for a better outcome for Europe than what we uh, sort of depicted here. Uh, but I think you're right. Switzerland is always a good place to hide in between the mountains. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. So guys, you heard the guest of the week, uh, Vincent Deluard. I'm training my French pretty good, actually. So uh, Vincent uh, wants to be long Swiss franc um, against basically whatever else you have, gold, other currencies. He doesn't care as long as you buy the Swiss franc. Uh, it's uh, September the 8th, 2022, when he came out to, in the macro trading floor coming up with this idea. Um, as a reminder, anyway, guys, the episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank. And these guys, this platform, Saxo, offers a very good coverage across FX, crypto, metals. And interestingly, they provide also some free currency sub-accounts and deposits in local currencies, which is something that is a pretty interesting proposal if you want to try it and, and, tra and trade FX. Yeah, um, it's actually exactly what I do in my own holding company when I have excess cash. I just utilize sub-accounts in various currencies. And then I move excess cash from, in this, for instance, in Danish kroners, uh, that's my holding company's base currency, to, for example, the US dollar or the Swiss franc uh, to either earn a, a positive yield compared to my local currency, but also sort of to gain from the, uh, from the currency move if I expect the currency to move up versus the Danish kroner. And right now I have um, a bit of my excess cash parked in US dollars and uh, actually also a tiny bit in Swiss franc. Um, so I think it's a very compelling uh, way of doing it. Uh, and um, if you want to check out the offering from, from Saxo Bank in relation to these currency sub-accounts, you can learn more at goto.saxo slash macrofx and we'll make sure to add the link uh, to the description below uh, on YouTube and in your podcast app. Andreas, the thing I'm the most surprised about is that you have excess cash in your company. That's really the most surprising thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I, 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 Alfonso, I'm getting married this weekend, so I don't have any excess cash on Monday. <laughs> all right, all right. Fair point, fair point. I'm going to check out the wedding, by the way. I'm going to be there and make sure that some that all the Italian food rules are respected at the Danish wedding. So that's, um, that's going to be tricky. But anyway, mate, uh, talking about the trade from uh, Vincent. So he's long Swiss franc, but the uh, macro thesis he put underlying where he effectively described the, the tectonic changes that are happening under the surface post-corona and that all the way lead to his macro, macro trade idea. What do you make of the underlying assumptions behind? Well, I think it's it's first of all feasible uh, that Europe will be stuck in a sort of prolonged mess as a consequence of the uh, energy crisis right now. So let's just start with that discussion because uh, in the intro we debated that the can will sort of be kicked down the road by utilizing the public sector balance sheet um, to absorb parts of the bill uh, when it comes to this energy 
uh, crisis. But I mean, by the end of the day, you don't magically create supply of energy by absorbing the bill via the public deficit, right? Uh, so I wouldn't be hugely surprised if we, in exactly one year from now, uh, look into a winter with the exact same issue. Um, and, and therefore, um, I think it's kind of a game changer when it comes to fiscal policy that we have this very scarce supply side um, that we will probably deal with at least for a time period of, say, two to three years on a, in a very optimistic scenario, right? Uh, it's not something that we will just discard next year because, I mean, the supply side will not be online unless a, a peace deal is, is signed with Putin. Uh, I find that very unlikely. So from, from a sort of regime shift perspective, I think it is a massive game changer that we've had this change of scenery when it comes to fiscal policy. Uh, and I think it's one of the sort of triggers that Vincent is looking at when he's calling for a regime shift uh, in terms of inflation. Uh, so I think he's kind of right that on an average level, inflation will be running at higher levels than what we've been used to. Uh, but I probably think that we are heading sharply lower um, in the next six months when it comes to inflation. And I think we will be moving from one extreme to the other extreme when it comes to inflation over the next two to three years. Oh, hey, it's all solved. Back to the supply issue six months later. Hey, it's all solved. Back to the supply issue six months later. I think that's a, a fairly feasible uh, thesis. Yeah, and also a system which is highly leveraged in general, Andreas, to something. So in our case, it's a lot of credit creation over the last 20 years, and we're also very leveraged to energy as an input uh, in Europe. I think it was Zoldan Pozar that put out a very interesting chart showing that Germany manufacturing output that is dependent on Russian gas, if you look at the numbers, something like 30 billion of imports of uh, equivalent of Russian natural gas were underpinning almost 2 trillion in German mm. economic manufacturing output. I mean, that's a simplification, but it goes to show how, how much embedded leverage there is in this energy input cost as well, together with the financial leverage that we've built in all Western economies through the creation of credit and lower real rates over time. And when in such a highly leveraged system, I think, assuming that things go back to normal or they normalize without bumps, without convex reactions is generally a dangerous assumption. So as we have seen a pickup in inflation, you might be right that the deceleration can be as quick. Yeah, uh, but let me just um, throw a couple of numbers at you, Alfonso, because okay. I've looked at the total energy cost as percent of GDP mm -hmm. in Germany, uh, and I think it went as low as uh, 25 to 3% of GDP at, at one point during 2020, if yeah. you annualized the uh, energy cost, because, I mean, commodities were basically close to zero, <laughs> if not even negative. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we got used to energy being priced at, at very close to the zero lower bound. Yeah. Uh, and right now, we're probably staring at a bill of more than 15% of GDP, the total cost um, in Germany. Uh, it's a bit cheaper elsewhere in Europe, but in Germany and in France, uh, roughly the same ballpark. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's obviously a massive game changer because uh, either the public sector will have to swallow this bill on an ongoing basis or else you will have to utilize the public sector balance sheet on an yeah. ongoing basis to swallow this. And it's obviously much easier 
uh, to sort of <laughs> absorb a price move if it's lower in the energy price, right? Uh, and even though we've had several instances in history uh, with energy bills above 10% of GDP, it's just very tricky from one day to the other yes. to ask the pe- private sector to, to um, accommodate a bill that is now, say, 10 times bigger than in 2020. So I, I, I think this matters a whole lot for the macro outlook for the next 10 years yeah. because we have to deal with it whole different monster when it comes to energy now yeah uh, it really resonates well with the article of the macro com- compass i just wrote called i think putin versus europe the long war it's not something we're going to sort out in six months and generally in finance there are two ways you can hit a leverage system by a rapid change that's what you were describing mm-hmm. from one state to the other but the second and always uh, overlooked is how long is the new state is going to last and how long is it going to be tight for? And here, we just don't know. But as you say, unless we strike a, a peace deal with Putin, which seems, seems to be geopolitically very unpalatable right now, <laughs> it's likely that we have to live with it. And the other important thing you said is that you can print euros or sterlings, but yeah, well, it sounds a bit populistic, but macro-populistic, but let's say you can't print energy. Coming back to Switzerland for, for a second, which was the trade idea of Vincent, apart from being a very, a very clear safe haven, I find two interesting things that could support the trade medium term. The first is that uh, the SMB chief, Jordan, uh, I don't know whether the spelling is correct, but okay, uh, you know, you know what I'm, who I'm talking about. He, it's, not, it's not Michael Jordan. But it's not Michael Jordan. No, no, he, run, he runs the Swiss National Bank, that guy. And he said something that I really liked, which is, Uh, The Swiss National Bank is not in the business of forward guidance. Not in the business of forward guidance. We aren't going to tell you whether the terminal rate is going to be 1% or 2% or 3% in Switzerland. Terminal rate is going to be whatever it's necessary to bring inflation down, full stop. So that's an approach that the Bank of Brazil, the National Bank of Brazil Mm. took, which is like, we're going to hike rates. It's going to be positive real rates for as long as it takes until we are winning the battle which goes to show quite a pragmatic approach, I think, from a central bank that could help strengthen the currency uh, vis-a-vis other currencies. And the other thing is that the Swiss National Bank accumulated huge, huge amounts of foreign assets over the last 10 years. And when you want to make sure that inflation goes down in, in, in an economy like Switzerland, one lever you can use is to strengthen your currency. So how do you do that? Well, you sell foreign assets, for example. You take your, all your Nasdaqs that you have bought and your Apple and your Microsoft and whatever, and you say, you know what? There you go. Um, I can sell some dollars and buy back some Swiss francs. So that can be another reason why I think the Swiss franc can do pretty well on a medium-term basis. Yeah. And you basically want to uh, position yourself in the same direction as the biggest hedge fund in the world, which is the Swiss (laughs) National Bank. And between, say, 2016 and 2021, the way to position alongside the Swiss National Bank was to buy Tesla. (laughs) And the way to position alongside them now is to be long the Swiss franc. Pretty true. I think, Andreas, we uh, summarized enough. And uh, this episode of the Macro Trading Floor has been very fun, both because of Vincent and also because it's always nice to talk to you. Very, very good when it comes to looking deep into topics like the energy crisis right now in a very unbiased way. That's what I like about your analysis every time. Thanks, mate, for the work you you do. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Of course, I get emotionally involved in this energy crisis. But I mean, if you look at the positions I hold right now, being long the SPX uh, versus the DAX, that's kind of the, a, a counter trade relative to what I just said on Europe. So I mean, I'm I'm trying to keep my trading apart from my 
my analysis on the European energy situation. But uh, thank you for, for listening out there as well. Uh, if you want to check out the Saxo platform, the um, link is right below in the description. Um, it is good um, when it comes to these currency sub-deposits, uh, so it could be uh, one way of, of actually positioning in Swiss franc. Uh, so go have a look. Uh, the link is right below here. My name is Andreas Stilo. And this is Alfonso Peccatiello. You listen to the macro trading floor. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.